Welcome to Viva La Volva, the podcast that explores and teaches about the goodness of the vulva. Here is your host, Dr. Kara Quant, an internal medicine doctor and advocate for female sexual health. Welcome to the Viva La Volva podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kara Quant, and I have a special guest on the episode. Her name is Heather Jeffcoat. She is a pelvic floor physical therapist, and I want to give a little introduction. Um, So she is also the author of Sex Without Pain, um, which is a self-treatment guide to the sex life you deserve, and a recognized expert in the field of pelvic health, uh, pelvic health physical therapy. Um, She's also been notable. um, She has most notably been a featured guest on Sex with Emily on the Sirius XM and podcast. Um, she's also been on Loveline with Mike and Dr. Drew, and she's been on other numerous magazines, websites, and television, um, and she's done appearances on those. Um, she received her Doctor of Physical Therapy degree from Duke University and is also a certified Pilates instructor and certified fascial stretch therapist. And she has three Los Angeles offices in Beverly Hills, Sherman Oaks, and La Kenyatta. So I thank you, uh, Heather, for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Kara. <laughs> um, you have such a uh, extensive uh, resume, I guess you can say, and I am so thankful that you are on. Um, and I wanted to start by asking, like, what has been your journey of becoming a public floor physical therapist? So, you know, when I went to PT school quite some time ago now, it doesn't seem that long ago, but here we are. <laughs> it's been a bit ago. I definitely did not go to school for pelvic floor physical therapy. And in fact, I didn't even realize that it was a thing. Um, so I'm so thankful for having chosen Duke and having all the exposure that it gave me in this field, because it really was one of the first programs in the country that had a multidisciplinary program where the physical therapists were working alongside alongside the OBGYNs and the urologists treating these women that had pelvic floor dysfunction, such as urinary incontinence, bowel incontinence, pelvic pain, painful sex. Um, but even still with all that exposure, you know, I kind of thought, hmm, that's interesting. I don't know if that's for me. I went to, cause I thought I want to do sports medicine and that's actually how I started out was in sports medicine, my first job out of school. And however, when I got into sports medicine, I just didn't like it. It was, it's, it's a lot of like what they call physical therapy mills. It's just a lot of patients per hour and you have, you know, the unlicensed therapy, uh, unlicensed aides working for you. And mm-hmm. it just wasn't the setting I wanted to be in. I went to PT school to actually help people, not to just delegate care to unqualified staff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, at that same time, my, one of my best friends from PT school was working at a place in Raleigh and they had a, a job opening and it was 50% orthopedic and sports and 50% women's health and pelvic health. And I'm like, well, you know what? At least I'll be doing half what I like doing all and I'll just see how I do with the other stuff. It's interesting <laughs> enough. And um, but when I got into that role and you know took more and more courses and the the feeling was really being met that I that I sort of had desired without realizing I desired it to help an underserved population of which women's health is clearly an, an underserved population. Underserved, yeah. Yeah. So I just, you know, kind of just dove in and, you know, made made some like mistakes along the way, of course, like we all do when we're learning and kind of figured it all out eventually and just developed a, a passion for it. And especially when you see women getting better with these things that they were told were not a problem, were not mm-hmm. a problem. They were told their, their problem was in their head. And then, you know, all I did was my, my physical therapy techniques and they, you know, hundred percent pain-free or, you know, can consummate their marriage. I mean, these huge relationship and life goals, it was mm-hmm. just, you know, could put a tampon in, let you know, for the first time without pain. I mean, you're, you're making such a huge change in someone's life that it just, um, was so rewarding. And, and that's kind of my, my pathway to, to where I am today. 
Mm -hmm. And you probably had better outcomes or you just felt more passionate about what you did in terms of women's health rather than the orthopedic side of physical therapy. Yeah, because I felt like I was meeting a a huge need and, you know, that's, that's something really great. And I mean, not, not a lot of people can say that they do a job that truly makes a difference like that in yeah. someone's life. And, yeah. you know, to, to feel like you're one of the few people in, in the country or the world, you know, the, the percentage of pelvic health PTs is a very small percentage of the, the general orthopedic PT population. So it's, it's pretty cool to feel like you're in this niche that, um, <laughs> that you're making such an impact with. Yeah. And from when you were doing it then to you doing it now, have you noticed that the percentage of uh, public floor PTs have uh, gone up or do you feel like they've still been steady? Yeah. I mean, percentage, it's hard to know because I'm sure like anything, you know, over time numbers go up and, mm-hmm. you know, percentage wise, it might be the same, even though number wise, it's definitely higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also, you know, there, there might be a larger percentage because I do feel like there's more awareness in women and, you know, obviously like just women, I've had so many women come to me that have diagnosed their own problems. So there's just a lot more, um, one awareness and sort of access to be able to help them find what to do with their pain or or their incontinence if they're not given any solution. And, um, you know, they, I think they just feel empowered to, to do so. And that's created a a greater need for this service. Mm, Yeah. And what got you on the path to writing the book, Sex Without Pain? And that was a really cool thing too. I never thought I would write a book. Like that's not what, that was not one of my life goals for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I was uh, at a time when this was probably about 2000, uh, when am I, about 2010 or so, I just started getting a lot of emails. And I remember this actually very clearly because I was living in New York city at the time. And, um, I, I just was like, wow, I'm getting all these emails. Cause at that time I'd maybe written like a few articles in like a couple magazines and newspapers and, you know, it wasn't like any like live, you know, radio show or appearances. And I'm just like, how are these people finding me and asking me these really long detailed questions via email? And, you know, I would try my best to answer, but also I can't be a physical therapist over email. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like, you know what, these people are finding me and they were from all over the world. Like, I mean, I was getting emails from like Europe and Asia and, um, you know, Hawaii, which is just, uh, you know, all over the place. And, mm-hmm. Um, I'm just like, I should, I should write a book. And that was sort of like where the seed was planted. And then during that time when I was living in New York, um, I was sort of forced to, uh, develop a sort of a business model per se, where I had to travel back to California because the only place I was licensed to practice was in California. Mm-hmm. And I had my own private practice at that point, And I had to move because my, my husband um, was a resident at the time and did his fellowship in New York city. And that's how we moved from LA to Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And but I still had all these patients to see. So I had worked it out with them that I was going to fly back every six weeks or so and, you know, stay there for five, six days and get them in like a couple visits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you think about that, like physical therapy in a traditional model, people are going to PT typically, they have an injury or a a chronic pain, whatever it is. And they're going to PT two plus times a week Mm -hmm. for six weeks or for 12 weeks or whatever it is. Uh, But here I was trying to see someone twice one time every six weeks, you know, <laughs> six weeks, which is just yeah. not the like a typical physical therapy model. Yeah. And I was getting people better, like just seeing them like once or twice every six weeks. And I'm like, wow. So clearly it's not the manual skills that I thought were so awesome that I have, which I do think I have good manual skills, <laughs> yeah. but it's mostly about like the education and giving them the tools to be able to self-treat. Because mm-hmm. at that time, I would say I was almost like 100% painful sex. Like that was my whole caseload. And, you know, I, I was training them using a medical device called a dilator. And I would do the techniques in the office and then um, send them with hand- handouts and told them, okay, you're trying to mimic what we did here in the office at home. And mm-hmm and good luck. And, you know, I'll see you in six weeks. Mm -hmm. And they would come back and they were like, you know, if they had a kit with four dilators in it, maybe over a six week period, they were up to like the second or third dilator. And I'm like, wow, 
okay. So, so at that point I was especially like, okay, I'm getting all these emails from around the world. And plus really, I'm just giving people like a day of education or like an hour of education and they're getting better. So I just need to put this in a book, Mm -hmm. uh, the program that I've kind of worked out that works so well for these women and just start writing it and get it published. So that, Mm -hmm. that was the book journey. Wow. And what are, what are, um, getting kind of into or getting into the book, um, what are some reasons for women to have pain with sex? And their histories are so varied. Um, you know, I would say the least common that I see in my practice, mm-hmm. however, is the first thing women are asked and makes them feel a little bit traumatized. I think that they're asked it right away is sexual abuse. Like that mm-hmm. can certainly be a reason that they have, um, sexual pain, uh, or fear of penetration, but it's, I mean, probably like less than 5% of my practice has that in their history. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, I'd say most often it's either something like a history of a urinary tract infection or a yeast infection, maybe, um, like an allergic reaction to the medications used for, uh, yeast infections, mm-hmm. um, like the topical, uh, sort of like burns their tissue, the monostat, like sort of an allergy to the monostat. Antifungal medications. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, and, or like a fall, you know, like, like a fall while they were snowboarding or, uh, they might have something concurrent that they don't even tie to their painful sex. For example, like maybe they always had urgency and frequency or, or interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome, which is a new name for IC. Mm-hmm. And they then like realize that's also why they have painful sex. So I would get women coming just about their painful sex. And then I look at their intake form and they're peeing like 22 times a day. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh yeah, I have IC. And, and they don't even understand that that's relevant to why they have painful sex. Um, so so those are some some pretty common reasons. Or they might have uh, like endometriosis also is another common reason um, women present with painful sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and history-wise, yeah, it's, it's usually some pain in the area, I would say, or inflammation that triggers a guarding response in the pelvic floor musculature that then sets them up for a short or tight pelvic floor, which makes it more painful with penetration. If the muscle is not relaxing or you sort of think it's inflexible or tight, then it will hurt when something tries to go in, whether it sometimes is a tampon or a penis or, um, you know, the fact that it's not relaxing and then it's painful and then now they're expecting pain. So the next time they try, mm-hmm. they're already expecting pain. So they're guarding and then it's more painful because they were guarding first and then they're, they're set up in that cycle. And then the other big classes of um, people that I see that have painful sex would be postpartum and menopausal for very similar reasons. And that's hormonal changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, okay. and along the lines of hormonal changes, which is coming up more and more in current research, would be women with the history of like combined hormonal contraceptive use. Mm-hmm. Well. Or birth control pills, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, what, um, actually, I found that really fascinating that most of the people that come in um, are... Um, not reporting trauma, like, you know, sexual abuse or something like that. Because I mean, that has been my misconception that, you know, many women suffer from painful sex because of a history of some type of abuse. So you have not found that to be the case when you do a, an assessment, like a, an assessment of them. Yeah, exactly. That's Mm -hmm. just not in the majority by far of their history. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and to the point where I've had women that have been in therapy for 15 years trying to uncover some abuse that they Mm -hmm. are like, it just can't be there. Like I've been in therapy for 15 years, but everyone says (laughs) because of the way I react when I'm on the table, like it must be abuse, you know, Mm -hmm. because there's so much fear. But but just because you have fear doesn't mean you had abuse. I mean, Mm -hmm. you think about any other pain in the body, like your like low back pain. You know, people get afraid to lift a box because they're afraid they'll throw their back out, but they're not sent to a psychologist for 15 years to try to work out some, something with their back. I mean, it's yeah. all like a lot of this is musculoskeletally either driven or has like a huge uh, component of their pain. And when you, when it comes to like vulvar pain or vaginal pain or rectal pain, people are made to feel like they're crazy and it's really mm-hmm. unfair to them. It really is. Mm-hmm. 
And what do you think are some um, common misconceptions that you get from doctors or physicians and the medical community on um, pelvic floor disorders? Well, I think there's still a lot out there that just don't believe that physical therapy can be a successful part of the treatment plan, uh, you know, except with incontinence. And even that took a, you know, that took a long time for, mm-hmm. for surgeons to come around on that. I remember when I first started seeing patients, it's, you know, doctors were like surgery only, there's no way it's going to help. It's only surgery. Um, And now that we're dealing more with like pain, like the American Urology Association in 2015 came out with a new recommended treatment algorithm for interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome, um, where physical therapy is one of the top line treatments. Mm -hmm. So it's basically right after, um, you know, dietary changes and maybe Mm -hmm. like behavioral modification, which physical therapy also instructs in behavioral modification. But pelvic floor manual therapy is is on that second line before a lot of other interventions that used to be done as first line. Before 2015, physical therapy was last on the algorithm. And we were only talking, this was like three, three and a half years ago. Yeah. And yet I've been doing these techniques since like the mid 2000s on these patients with urinary urgency, frequency, and painful bladder with success. But, you know, it, it just took so long for, for physicians and just, you know, more and more research that kind of came out to help prove to them that this is the thing that works. And I think just anecdotally patients saying that it was the only thing that worked. Mm-hmm. So why, why, if it's the only thing that works, is it the last people try (laughs) on the list. Yeah. And that's funny because I mean, for regular, uh, musculoskeletal, you know, like a a joint injury, knee injury, back injury, whatever, it's usually first line is usually, I mean, there's like stretching and conservative stuff, but physical therapy is pretty high up there of, Hey, if these, you know, things aren't working, if ibuprofen or whatever, isn't helping you, let's go to physical therapy. So you would think, the same thing would happen for pelvic floor disorders, but that has not been the case up until recently. Until recently, but even still, you know, just because the American Urology Association put out these guidelines, I still have urologists that, you know, they're like, oh no, like they're still doing their like, uh, like bladder distillation installations and, um, you know, as, as like the first thing they do. And I'm just like, well, you know, I give them the guidelines politely, which sometimes they don't appreciate, but you know, it's like, we're just all trying to help our patients. Like, yeah. like they don't want to, a lot of these physicians, because they don't have the time to honestly spend with these patients because they do take a lot of time. When someone has chronic pain, mm-hmm. it's not a visit that can adequately, you know, be sort of managed in a, in a short visit. And there's not, because there's so much musculoskeletally going on, they are not musculoskeletal experts, the, the, the physicians and surgeons that these patients are going to, you know, OBGYNs, urologists, urogynes, urogynecologists, in case someone doesn't know what a urogyne is, um, they are not musculoskeletal people, right? Are the musculoskeletal, uh, doctors are orthopedic surgeons and physiatrists or, you know, the PM and our physicians or like the family medicine, sports medicine specialists. Like those are the musculoskeletal people, but that's not who patients are going to for bladder, you know, urgency and painful sex. So they're going to these others that unfortunately, and depending on who trained them even, you know, because I think so much is like what they learned in residency and fellowship. And if they were sort of swayed that if this is like something you definitely send to psychology, then the, that musculoskeletal component is not going to be on the forefront of their mind. And they're just going to assume that they need to be, um, you know, have, have psychological, therapy can very well may need, but you cannot talk away somebody's chronic pain or, 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 you know, even like long-term pain, sexual pain, that is not something that can be talked away. Just like you can't talk away someone's back pain. And, (laughs) and I mean, I still have doctors that will tell patients just have a glass of wine. You just need to relax. And that just like gets my ire up so much because again, what? Like you, what? you many years of medical school to dole out that advice, you know, yeah. it's, yeah. it's horrible. And like back to sort of the back pain thing, like, would it be acceptable if your orthopedic surgeon say, just take a shot of tequila, your back will be fine. 
<laughs> your back will be good. Yeah. That's going to be good. It might, yeah. but that's not going to solve the problem. <laughs> yeah, not at all. But, you know, I think that there are so many people, so many providers, physicians, assistants, physicians, nurse practitioners that just aren't even educated about what pelvic floor disorders are, you know, like what is vaginismus and what it, you know, like I feel like there's so many people that are just misinformed or just not informed at all of what these disorders are. And so they don't know how to properly treat it. So it's like, oh, well, I can, you know, I can recommend just drinking some wine and, and relaxing and you'll feel better. Because yeah. um, I know I, my background is internal medicine. Um, but up into up until I think my first or second year of residency, did I find out? Did I finally find out about what pelvic floor physical therapists did, mm-hmm. who they were? Um, so I feel like there just needs to be more education out there on what you do in general. And for sure, for sure, because there's still a huge, you know, back, back to your original question of misconceptions that all we teach patients how to do is kegels. With- <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there's, there's apps now for that, you know, like, you know, our profession is so much more detailed than that. And we really help integrate care across like multiple disciplines because our patients come in and they don't just have painful sex or they don't just have urinary urgency uh, or infrequency issues or incontinence. They have painful sex plus really, you know, pain, painful periods that like, like increased back pain during their periods and as well as urinary frequency of 20 times a day, as well as, you know, hip, like left hip pain, you know, they're, they don't have problems in isolation and, mm-hmm. and we can really integrate across all of those systems. And, you know, unfortunately in medicine, I would say, except for urogynes, which is why, I mean, I love my, my gynecologist, my urologist, but urogynes for women are the most comprehensive because they do bowel, bladder, and sexual dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So many OBGYNs are just more like, you know, bladder, vagina, uterus, um, urologists are like just the bladder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if somebody has chronic constipation, but yet they have urinary frequency, their, their chronic constipation is going to be playing into their, their incontinence or their, their bladder issues. And it all kind of needs to be addressed together at the same time. You can't just address one thing without the other. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you guys will integrate everything kind of together. We do. Yeah. From, you know, between bowel, bladder, sexual dysfunction, we ask all those questions on the initial intake, but we also step back and look at a bigger picture mm-hmm. and assess like hip, if there's any hip dysfunction or back, back issues, um, general posture, because how someone stands, for example, gives us a clue to if their pelvic floor may be in like a shortened state, because there's just like classic pelvic pain posture where like the hips are tucked under a little bit, but someone can still have pelvic pain and not have that posture, mm-hmm. but it just kind of clues us in. It's just one piece of the puzzle and, yeah. you know, it, and we can integrate that and, you know, they might have like hip impingement and there's like tests that we can do for that, which would be like an anterior hip pain when the knee is essentially drawn towards the chest, or it can just kind of be anterior hip pain that aches all the time. So we can make a referral to an orthopedist for that to be assessed because some of the deep muscles in the hip connect directly to the pelvic floor muscles, like through a tendon. So you bet that if you have a hip problem and a pelvic floor problem, you need to also address both of those at the same time. Yeah. And yeah. a neurologist is not going to ask about hip pain. Mm-hmm. Just not. Yeah. I uh, recently saw a patient that had hip pain and she had been to an orthopedic doctor and they did a number of tests. They did imaging, they did MRIs, they, you know, sent her to physical therapy for orthopedic stuff, not a public for a physical therapist. And then she came to me and she was like, I've been having this hip pain. It hasn't been getting better. I've gone to the orthopedic doctor multiple times. I've had imaging, nothing is working. And the first thing that I said, I mean, I, you know, asked her some questions and, um, and did a physical exam. But the first thing that I said was, I think that you should go to a pelvic floor physical therapist. That was the first thing. And she was like, well, what is that? And, mm-hmm. and so I had to, you know, tell her about what, what you do. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people, including the orthopedists don't necessarily know what a pelvic floor physical therapist. It, it's true. And I'm married to an orthopedist. So as <laughs> We, we have these conversations yeah. <laughs> and he does pelvic trauma. Like he literally does pelvic trauma and <laughs> fractures. And I was like, you need to send him a form. You need to have all your 
patients fill out a form on their like, you know, sexual dysfunction. And, you know, he's at a university here in LA and I'm like, you know, you can send them to the Eurogynes and let them do the evaluation. Cause I know you're not going to evaluate that, but it's been like years of me saying, you got to integrate this into your practice. Yeah. No, really? <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Was posterior um, pain that this person had. What was that again? It, was it posterior hip pain or anterior hip pain that this patient had? She was having anterior hip pain. Um, and it was only after she was like walking for a while did she start having hip pain. And then she started limping and then she mm-hmm. um, like the pain would just get worse and it would get better once you like lay down and rested. Right. Um, it would always happen. Yeah. Anterior. Um, and usually when she was walking or, you know, moving around. Yeah. So I hope the pelvic PT can help her because we can yeah. certainly reproduce anterior and posterior hip pain with pelvic floor palpation. Mm-hmm. So just depending on which muscle is involved. Yeah. More commonly, the, the posterior hip pain is uh, obturator internus muscle, and it has the same referral pattern as the piriformis muscle, which is really interesting because patients will go to traditional you know, orthopedic sports PT mm-hmm. and just not quite get 100% better because yeah. they- or have that manual therapy to the obturator internus, which mm-hmm. is best palpated internally. So, yeah, it's really cool. So, yes. So, yeah, I do hope that she went to the pelvic floor physical therapist. Yeah. <laughs> but getting on to, because um, you mentioned Kegel exercises, and I feel like that is such a huge thing. Everyone hears about Kegel exercises, and I, they just are, like it's like the magical exercise for everything that has to do with the vulva or the vagina. And so tell me or tell us a bit about Kegel exercises. Like what is it about? What does it do? Does it really help everyone or does it help anyone? Um, Because I know there's a lot of misconceptions about that. There are. And like, yeah, because I was saying how that's what everybody assumes that there's any problem with your vulva or vagina, you do Kegels. And Mm -hmm. I would step back and say, there are actually very few problems with your vulva and vagina that you should do Kegels for. Uh, Because Kegels are uh, pelvic floor muscle contractions of, um, you know, that are done in isolation, or you can do them with like your larger muscles to, um, to kind of help support the, the, uh, perineum and the, and the pelvis better. And essentially when you do a contraction of any kind, anywhere in the body, you're getting shortening of the muscle over time. If you don't sort of counterbalance that and stretch it as well. So if you know, how many people are routinely stretching their pelvic floors, like nobody ever. So (laughs) <laughs> so if you're continually contracting a muscle and you have a pain disorder and and that might be painful painful sex or like you like a low abdominal pain uh you know hip pain um or you are um you know, doing, doing them and you have like urinary urgency frequency, like people wouldn't call that a pain, but I classify it in my mind when I'm treating someone as a pain because they have something that's, um, altering their sort of daily routine and, uh, you know, due to, due to this dysfunction. Um, and not that someone that has like incontinence isn't, isn't, but I guess it's, it's, uh, distressing in a different way. And, mm-hmm. and like clinically what I find is that their muscles are overactive or short or non-relaxing when, when they have pain or they have urgency frequency or even like an urge incontinence. Um, so they, I, if they're doing kegels, I tell them to stop and they're only sort of to do them at the point when I prescribe them to do them in their program. If somebody has something like stress incontinence, then, um, which is uh, leakage with like coughing, sneezing, laughing, jumping, or other kinds of exercise, then with them, they do typically need to do kegels. It's because there might be um, just either overall weakness or maybe like a stretch weakness that might have occurred from like a vaginal delivery, for example. Um, So stress incontinence would be more likely just from like the name, if that's what they're presenting as, I would be more likely to prescribe kegels or pelvic floor muscle contractions for them. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, most of my practice is pelvic pain and sexual pain. So very rarely do my patients just do kegels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when they do, they're always incorporating it with some internal stretching with those medical devices I mentioned earlier called dilators mm-hmm. so that they can lengthen the the tissue out. And, um, you know, it's really important too, because 
when a muscle is short and tight, it's it's also very weak. So anybody listening to the podcast, if you Google length tension curves, you'll see how um, strength is plotted versus how long the muscle unit is. So if it's, let's say it's fully short and contracted, you'll see on the curve that it's not going to be able to perform a very strong contraction. So it's going to be weak. And on the other side of that curve, if it's overstretched, the muscle fibers aren't overlapping in a way that they can produce an optimal contraction. So it's also going to be weak, but it's weak for a different reason. It's weak because it's long, not weak because it's short. So mm-hmm. those patients that have short, tight, overactive muscles really need to first focus on relaxation and lengthening before they should start strengthening. And that's why, and, and they'll just get worse if they do Kegel exercises, Mm -hmm. like, or, or they won't get better. And then they'll think Kegels didn't work, but Kegels weren't right for them to begin with. So, Mm -hmm. um, and, and then a lot of women, you know, when it is appropriate, they have to know that they're doing it correctly. Not all women do them correctly. And, um, the study that keeps getting quoted, I wish they would almost do another one with a larger sample size because it only had about 50 people in the study, but half of the women um, did Kegels incorrectly. Um, so, you know, if, if you're in a general practice and you maybe see 40 people a day that all have stress incontinence, well, only half of them are probably doing their their Kegels properly. Mm-hmm. So if you say, okay, you want to avoid surgery, go home and do kegels. If they're not doing them right, they're not going to help themselves. And then they'll think they need surgery, but they weren't doing them right to begin with. And then half of the women that were doing them wrong in the study, um, and this was a study from the early 90s by Bump, B-U-M-P at all, if anyone wants to Google that and and pull up the primary source. Um, But half of those women that were doing them incorrectly were doing them in what they termed an incontinence promoting behavior. So they were actually making their problem worse. So instead of properly like closing the openings and lifting the pelvic floor, they were actually bearing down, like as if they were having a bowel movement. Mm-hmm. And, and I see this all the time in my practice too, that I, you know, this is what we assess also when we're um, assessing them on that first visit is their ability to properly contract, relax, bear down. And if you are bearing down, then you're just further weakening or straining those structures over time. And, and you're not going to help yourself. You know, yeah. it's sort of like if someone tells you to like, flex your arm and like, you know, do like a bicep curl, like an arm curl, but you lie on your back and you do like a skull crusher or triceps exercise. It's like, no, I told you to do your biceps. Why are you doing your triceps? You know, like, you know, biceps are never going to get stronger if you're doing Mm -hmm. that exercise. So it's, it's the same sort of thing. You have to be coordinated and understand what you're doing in order to help you. Otherwise you're just not going to um, help your problem and you can make it worse. Yeah. So what would you say is the correct way to do Kegel exercises? So the easiest way sort of remotely that I could tell somebody is that they want to have it be a lot more subtle than, than they think they need to, especially when they're just learning or making sure they're doing them right. Because one of the biggest training errors is that women think it's supposed to feel like this major thing. So their glutes, their, their, you know, glute muscles are squeezing or their thighs are tensing. They're pushing their belly out and they need to just make it like closing the openings. They'll feel the anus closing first, and then they need to feel it move forward, like uh, towards the vagina and the urethra Mm -hmm. and then their belly should very gently their lower abdomen abdomen should fall down or like towards their spine if they're doing it on their back um or you know in any position but normally they're practicing initially on their back and they're feeling their belly fall down towards the table or towards their spine um if their belly bulges out they're probably not doing it right and if they um, see any movement. If they look down and they see that their body's moving, they're not doing it right. So mm-hmm. they have to sort of clue into, I mean, they have to be body aware, um, really, uh, to do it. Um, getting a mirror can be helpful too. And just making sure that like, okay, I don't see any of these big muscles on my body working, but with a mirror, I do see like, there's kind of like a closing in a lift of those holes. And so I'm probably doing them right. But beyond that, how many should they be doing? What type should they be doing? Because there's different types of kegels, some that are a longer hold that work on the endurance, and some that are faster that work on the power, and some that are like a controlled lowering or like a elevator exercise. Um, And elevator exercises are very difficult to do properly. And when we use pelvic floor muscle biofeedback, which has them hooked up to a computer in our office, so they can see real time what their muscle function is doing. 
um, almost almost every time, and, and these are like mainly my stress incontinence patients, I say, okay, squeeze and hold for 100%. And this would be more advanced once they have like at least seven to 10 seconds of endurance. And then now just sort of like let go part way. So you're holding it about 50%. And almost always they like just lose it completely. Like they just lose the contraction and then they come right back up to that 50%, mm-hmm. which is just a 50% contraction. It's not a controlled lowering anymore. And we have to train our muscles functionally in that way too, because if we sneeze, then that's essentially what's happening. Like the in- increase in intraabdominal pressure is forcing our pelvic organs down into our pelvic floor. And I tell them like, until you control that, you're going to keep having some degree of incontinence because you're losing it every time. Like you can see on the screen that you're just not able to control a slow descent. You completely lose it. So, so yeah, that's, that would be, you know, then that would be a tool in the office, but, but for a minute home, like a mirror and just not having the exercise as big as they think it should be is a great way to start. Yeah. And so what I have been told, and maybe I'm telling the wrong thing to people, but I will say when people are, when women are using the bathroom, when they're urinating to start and stop the stream, is that the same type of exercise as doing it laying on your back and looking to see that, you know, the anus is contracted and moving towards the vagina? Like, is that the same so in a sense, yeah, they're trying to locate those muscles. However, I actually advise against doing that because mm-hmm. then you're training them while they're on a toilet and they're trying to be in a state where their pelvic floor muscles are supposed to relax and mm-hmm. they're supposed to be peeing. But now that you're telling them, oh, I need to stop this. And so that could potentially lead to like a voiding dysfunction where they're retaining. They have a hard time relaxing. Mm-hmm. It's setting up the like abnormal coordination. We really want to train them that when you're in that situation, it is a state of pelvic floor muscle relaxation, not a state of contraction. Um, so I say if they ever want to do it just to check and make sure like they can slow it down, like do it no more than like once a month just to make sure like, okay, I got this. But I wouldn't have them do it like multiple times a week or every time they pee because they're just going to set up a that bad coordination mm-hmm. like a bad cycle yeah um and then i'll have some patients so that's like their cue that they remember to do a kegel so i'll say okay then wait till you're completely done peeing and pooping mm-hmm. and then if you want to sit on the toilet and do like a few sets of your exercises it's fine but you have to be completely done mm-hmm. before you do that okay and then um, you said that there were a couple conditions that Kegels can help. And you were saying stress incontinence or the incontinence or, you know, peeing when you are coughing or sneezing or laughing or something like that. What is the other um, um, time that uh, Kegels help? Well, I mean, I would say that's essentially it, um, okay. except but doing Kegels are a part of my core strengthening program that almost every one of my patients gets eventually, you know, so to kind of address their hip and low back pain and making everything stable and coordinated again. Um, Most of my patients don't do kegels uh, and, you know, unless it's part of a later stabilization program, unless they have stress incontinence, even urge incontinence, they do not start doing kegels because usually they're not weak because they're over lengthened. They're usually weak because their muscles are short and tight. Mm. Um, And all those pain, diagnoses we discussed um, that I kind of rattled off at the beginning, um, they should not be doing kegels either. Mm, Okay. And then in terms of uh, continuing on the exercises, what would the recommendation be for someone that is doing it for the right reasons? Like how many times a day, how, how often should someone be doing kegels if they are, if they have stress incontinence? And that's a great question too, but there's no one answer fits all yeah. because it all depends on their starting strength and starting endurance and um, how many, you know, not just endurance, like how long can I hold it one time, but let's say you can hold it for five seconds. How many times can you hold it at your original strength for five seconds? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if they get tired after three repetitions of five second holds, then they're going to go home with just doing five repetitions of five second holds at a time and doing like two or three sets of those. And then they might need to do it three times a day because they get tired so quickly. You know, you just can't force your muscles to keep on going. You're, they're not going to get stronger 
in that scenario. But if someone comes in and they can hold it for seven seconds and they can do that 10 times, then I might just have them do 12 to 15 repetitions times a couple of sets once a day and just be like, boom, your, your long holds are done because your endurance and power is pretty good. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on where they come in. It has nothing to do with how severe their incontinence is because mm-hmm. severity is also sometimes dependent on their activity and their awareness. You know, some people are like, I'm fine as long as I don't jump on a trampoline, but I'd sure love to go to sky zone with my kids. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of their goal, but as long as they would say there's no leakage other than that. So it's, you know, severity just doesn't really correlate to how your Kegel should be. And that's why everybody at some point should see a pelvic floor physical therapist, even just for like a baseline assessment. And am I doing them right? And how many should I do? And, you know, there's great apps out there that give you progressive programs that are great to follow as long as you are, um, doing them correctly, then you can do the right reason, right? For the right reason. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And, and, Kegels are not the solution to everything in the pelvic floor. I just underscore that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's sad um, going to like incontinence because there are so many women. There are so many women that have incontinence, stress, urge incontinence, um, and are completely embarrassed by it. Like they, you know, they wear uh, panty liners, they wear diapers, they wear, you know, like there is just, there's so much shame around incontinence in general. And I feel like I, I want everyone to know about, yeah, pelvic floor physical therapists that yeah. And not just shame, but like shame, but at the same time, acceptance, like, mm-hmm. well, but mm-hmm. I've had vaginal delivery and my baby was nine and a half pounds. So it's normal. All my friends pee their pants too. Like there's such a normalization of it mm-hmm. in our society. And I think, um, whether it's coming from the fact that like their mom also had incontinence and, and I tell my patients, I'm like, incontinence is not hereditary. Like mm-hmm. there's, you know, yeah. If you have some dis- like genetic predisposition because of like looser joints, and I know some of those are based, you know, um, in, um, in genetics, but, um, Otherwise, I'm like, it's not, it, it has to do with like the way, you know, the, the, not just the way you deliver, because even people that have C-sections, by the way, can still have incontinence, you know, mm-hmm. just being pregnant increases your risk of pelvic floor dysfunction, regardless of mode of delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one way versus the other doesn't spare you from having um, incontinence or even prolapse. We didn't talk about that. And prolapse actually would be another thing that Kegels are often appropriate for, um, you know, to sort of add another, another thing for that. But um and is it all different or if you can explain what prolapse is and is it all different types of prolapse? Sure. So, so prolapse is when the, the organs are just sort of not in their sort of tucked up anatomical position. Mm-hmm. They are, they are dropping down. So you can have like your bladder that's falling down or your urethra um, or the uterus or like the vaginal vault or, um, uh, like the rectum or, or the intestines. And, you know, so the intestine one that's called an enterocele, and that's usually, that's not something that physical therapy can help. That's typically yeah. a, a surgical issue if, it, if it's a big problem, but mm-hmm. if it's a mild degree, so, so there's, um, you can grade it from a zero to four on like the pelvic organ prolapse sort of scale. And if it's a two or less then typically they can manage pretty well with physical therapy, but, the, the problem is like when it's a two and it happens suddenly, so it's usually like they didn't have a problem and maybe it happened from delivery, they tend to notice it so much more and it's so much bothersome. Sometimes PT alone can't really help as much. But if it's a prolapse because let's say they had chronic constipation, like I've had women that have never had a baby and have a grade two prolapse mm-hmm. from having a history like that, just chronic straining. Wow. And um, But it, that prolapse happened gradually. So mm-hmm we can tend to improve the discomfort they feel from having a prolapse with PT and Kegels and other like core strengthening exercises that help support the pelvic floor mm-hmm. because it was a gradual onset of a, of a grade two. It wasn't like sudden drop. And right. yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and how it feels like one of the most common descriptions is they feel like they're sitting like on a golf ball mm-hmm. or they just feel like something's hanging. Like they'll be standing and they'll say it feels like something's hanging between their legs. But it's in most cases, the ones I see, it's not out of them, but it's just that lack of support and fear yeah. that they have. Yeah. Mm. And, um, 
I mean, yeah, that, that's very good to know that prolapse can also be, uh, certain types of prolapse can be treated with pelvic floor physical therapy as well as Kegels. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into your book, um, Sex Without Pain, uh, which is a self-treatment book. So I wanted to ask you quickly before we got into the book, like what was your, um, because you're a pelvic floor physical therapist and you typically, you get money off of seeing patients, why did you decide to do something for self-treatment? Well, because of many reasons. Um, There are many barriers to why people don't come to pelvic floor physical therapy. And I think in Los Angeles, because it tends to not be covered very well by insurance. So most of us that do this are out of network providers, meaning we do not accept insurance rates and patients have to pay up front. It can be a financial barrier to Mm. them to even come to this therapy. And the point is to not make as much money as you can off of people with problems, it's to help people in however you can, um, whatever capacity. So I know I've captured like a huge number of people that otherwise would not have come. And maybe it wasn't financial. Maybe it's just like they literally can't get the time off work because they, you know, teach in some rural part of, you know, outside LA and there's no PT. So, you know, they're teachers. They can't, even if you start at 630 in the morning, you know, you you can't necessarily get to school in time and and all of that other stuff. So, you know, there's financial, there's, um, there's time and so many other and so many other barriers. But also, I mean, I have no like I'm not disillusioned in any way to think that people will fly from Germany to see me. Like, you know, this is information that needs to be accessible to everybody because it is painful sex in many uh, capacities is is curable. Like there's no reason any, well, I wouldn't say any, but because sometimes there are reasons why beyond the muscles that, that there's, um, that they're experiencing pain, like I said, endometriosis, or maybe they have a skin condition, but so many women, I should say, should be able to put a tampon in without pain, should be able to have sex without pain. And they just need um, some guidelines to follow. But I will say I have had people come from Europe and across the US and Canada to see me. But most people, again, aren't gonna be able to do that. Again, we're talking about time and financial barriers to that. So, you know, it's just getting the information out there so that people can help themselves because it, it is something that women can can do for themselves. And I proved that when I was living in Manhattan. You know, mm-hmm. be seeing someone once or twice every six weeks, it's clearly more about what I taught them. And that's what's in the book. Yeah. And I'm sure there's been cases where people have read the book and they're like, I want to come see her. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so take us into the book a little bit. Um, I know that you say that there it's pretty easy in terms of the self-treatment um, and that there's a couple techniques that you describe um, in the book. So take us through, um, some of those techniques. Um, yeah, some of those techniques. Yeah. So, so with the book, the women should always also have a medical dilator kit and I'll often send people to sole source dilators just because they're a, they're a U.S. designed and U.S. made company. Like they're made here in Los Angeles. So, you know, it's, I, I, and plus I love their devices. They have like a nice long handle. The tip is sort of slightly angled. So it really reaches the muscles, um, in a nice way. And I will put those, I'll put some, um, information within the, um, the description of the podcast. So people will be able to access what you're saying. Perfect. Perfect. So, um, so they need to have, um, a set of medical dilators to go along with the book because you can't use your own finger and, also, you should not have your husband try to use his finger. Like the last <laughs> thing your husband or your partner should be doing is to try to do your pelvic floor therapy. Like mm-hmm. if there was ever going to be a long-term mood killer, is that. Like your, your husband is not your therapist. Like <laughs> it, it's got to be kept separate. And you also don't want your, your partner to use dilators on you because – there's, I got, and I always tell my patients, I do not use dilators on my patients in the office. I use my hands because I need to feel what the muscle's doing. I need to feel if it's starting to guard or react in a negative way. I cannot feel that through a dilator. Mm-hmm. The dilators are for the women to use at home on themselves because if they like sort of, oh, that was like a wrong angle, they can adjust it right away. If the husband's trying it and they, you know, try to, it's going to, it's going to create a lot of 
anger and fights. And so, you know, <laughs> husbands are not a part of the program. This is meant to be self-treatment for sure. Um, and, you know, I take them through like where it starts is I try to connect them with like other stories and, you know, what myths, like try to dispel some myths around sexual pain and what my patients have been told, like, for example, like a glass of wine will cure it or like the assumption that there's been sexual abuse and, you know, several other myths that I try to just um, connect with them because I hear it time and time again. And it, they're just, they're just not true. Um, you know, I had like a patient, I've had actually three patients I can remember over like the almost 20 years I've been doing this that were told they had, um, um, herpes because, uh, because they had vulvar pain, but they never had an outbreak. And then like their blood test was negative, but they're like, Oh, but the doctor's like, Oh, but you must have herpes. And they had vulvodynia. And it's just like, Oh my gosh, like what is going on? Uh, So, so I I go through some myths and, um, I have them do a self vulvar exam and a self exam with their dilator kit. So Mm -hmm. what a dilator kit is, is it starts small and then it gradually gets bigger. And sort of depending on what stage you're in, like if you're a primary sexual pain, which is like, you've always had pain with sex, maybe even always pain or inability to um, insert a tampon, Mm -hmm. then typically I have them get a kit of seven or eight, which like from start to finish, um, they're the same size, but it just has smaller jumps in between. If -hmm. somebody has more secondary onset of pain, meaning at one point they experience pain-free sex, but now it's painful, which can happen for all those other history things. Like I said, UTI or after delivery, um, then usually they can just get that kit of four because they, they're used, they don't have like a fear of inserting necessarily like that's longstanding. It's, you know, they, they've had sex before and they, they tend to do fine with a kit of four. And so they insert and they kind of rate like what size they're able to start with. And that's like sort of their first goal is would be to get to the next size Mm -hmm. because there's obviously sometimes a long way to go. If you've never been able to put a tampon in without pain to now having sex with your boyfriend, like where's the in between. So you have to be able to measure it and you can measure your progress by using progressively larger dilator sizes. And it's imperative that you do not increase the dilator size unless you are pain-free with a previous size. Mm. So, um, you know, just pushing through for the sake of pushing through is not going to help anybody. So it's all about a pain-free progression. Mm. And so they, they sort of need to assess their starting point and then they can begin the program. And the program, um, begins always with the smallest dilator. And I teach them, um, in the book and in my office too, if they're, if they're, you know, in office type patients, how to get the muscles to relax and unwind by doing exercises in a very specific way. And essentially they're internal, like intravaginal manual therapy techniques that are um, done with a small dilator. So, you know, if anybody out there has ever had a massage before and you think about how you have knots in your neck and back and just like Mm -hmm. how tender those are versus like surrounding areas. So that's essentially the first thing they're doing is they're searching for knots or trigger points in their pelvic floor Mm -hmm. and they're trying to do a gentle release of those trigger points. And then they go into a specific type of stretching that's a neuromuscular stretch that works, um, faster than like what a traditional stretch would, um, than how a traditional stretch would work. And essentially that does start with doing a Kegel first and followed immediately by a stretch. And so this would be the only time early on my patients are allowed to do Kegels. And it's for two reasons. One, because it's immediately followed by a stretch. So that's mm-hmm. why I allow it. But also the technique by doing a contraction of the muscle basically facilitates a hyper-relaxed state of the muscle. So when they do the stretch, they're actually getting a better stretch than if they were to, for example, just put a dilator in and move it to the side like mm-hmm. that. That would be like what we might call a more traditional stretch. So mm-hmm. it's using a muscle contraction to facilitate a greater relaxation. Mm-hmm. And and then they do some other intravaginal massage techniques, like I said, in a specific order. And that's all with the smallest dilator. And I'll tell you, most patients like that when I, I love my favorite patient is the one that comes in and has never been able to put a tampon in without mm-hmm. pain because within two to four weeks of starting an internal program, they will be pain-free with 
with doing that. And these are people that might've had this problem since they were 14 or 15 and first tried to use a tampon. And now they're 25 or 35. And that is like the best feeling. And then they're like, all right, this is going to work. And you know, their whole demeanor changes. They Mm -hmm. just go from really scared and, you know, like, like jumpy on the table. And, um, they just let so much of it go once they are pain-free with that first one. And I just tell them like, it's just more of the same. Like we're just basically going to be doing more of the same. Mm -hmm. And I teach them how to progress to larger and larger dilators and what they do with the dilators. And then there's a section of my book that talks about transitioning to intercourse. And also, you know, for patients that are not integrating a pelvic floor PT, like I said, either because of time or finances Mm -hmm. or whatever, um, I encourage them to see maybe an orthopedic PT, like if it's a financial barrier, because so many orthopedic physical therapists do take insurance. And if they have a hip or back issue, they need to understand that that's a part of it too, for reasons we discussed earlier. Yeah. Can do their pelvic floor stuff at home, see an orthopedic PT, get some, you know, improvements made on that. And then they'll have more likely complete resolution of their pain. Mm. And will do you will orthopedic PTs do any internal? Um, no. They won't. Okay. Uh, no. But <laughs> <laughs> you should be doing that unless they've had advanced coursework. Yeah. Yeah. And I was uh, going to say internal exam. So usually, you know, checking to see the pelvic floor to see if it's tight or you know to see what it is. But yeah. they don't do any of that because they no. need training. Yeah, they need training. You don't yeah. want anybody doing that that hasn't had any training. Right, yeah. um, and, you know, what? it's just an assessment with, like, one gloved um, finger that's lubricated. And, um, you know, that's what that's what we do in the office. But we're, like, yeah. really slow and gentle because our patients come in, they're really fearful. I mean, every other new patient I have is, you know, their, their sympathetic nervous system is on overdrive. Like, <laughs> like, you can just tell. Like, they start to sweat. They get dry mouth. Mm-hmm. You, you know their heart's racing. Yeah. And everything is like ready to flee from the lion. Yeah. <laughs> and and to see that change really like in two to four weeks, I'm thinking one of my patients now who's just cannot believe, you know, and she's like culturally too, like that's a, um, like she's from the Middle East originally. So she grew up very much like women don't have sex and yeah. unless they're married, like that's just not yeah. a and so there's a lot of always a lot of shame put on her young for even having thoughts of doing that. Mm. Uh, so she was so like m- of my most recent patient and in less than a month, she was a new person and wow. she laughs about it now. I mean, we're only like four months in and she's almost like to her largest size. I mean, wow. none of us can believe it from how she looked on the first day. I would have thought for sure she would have been nine months plus is mm-hmm. she's, she's going to be under six months and it's amazing. Yeah. So I'm sure people, I mean, it sounds like people come in very fearful and they usually leave very grateful for the progress that they've made. Yeah. Over, over time. And, you know, sometimes, yeah, within one session, they can see how it's, I mean, that's the whole whole goal is that they come that first session and we spend 90 minutes with them and we tell them why we think they have this pain and what our plan is to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they at least leave, you know, 30% better knowing that we believe them, that we don't think they have a psychologic issue, that we have a treatment plan in place to address their musculoskeletal dysfunction that they clearly have and have always had. And, you know, we acknowledge the fact that they should not have been offered a glass of wine for their treatment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, there's like, they, they definitely leave 30% better just from a psychologic component um from that wow yes the power of education the power of just a little bit of i don't know just yeah education essentially um that's what's going on it's the most important thing because you're not going to heal somebody in a day but like when you educate them like you're you're starting to give them the tools they need to manage this issue in the short term so that they can get over it yeah. Yeah. Man. Well, I wanted to ask a question um, that I got before we get off, uh, but I wanted to ask a question that I got from one of the uh, Viva La Volfa art exhibit panels. And someone asked, um, what advice can you give women who have recently given birth and, the virg- and their vagina has not gone back to normal? And then the kind of follow-up question is, how do they overcome the stigma of being quote-unquote loose? Because I think that that is such a, I think that that's a, such an important question um, that the 
the stigma of being loose is so bad and wrong and everyone doesn't want to be loose. And so what, what would you say to that person um, asking that question? Yeah, I know. So it, it is so it, it's, it's like bad, you know, they carried their baby successfully for, you know, 40 plus weeks. And now they have a change in their body that they're one viewing negative amongst, uh, you know, within themselves and maybe their partner is viewing as a negative. And, uh, you know, a lot, a lot can happen during, during a delivery, um, you know, it's a vaginal delivery. There could be a lot of tearing or if a woman has a C-section, but she pushed first, that can definitely cause some tearing of the fascia, which might make that vaginal opening a little bit bigger. Um, and you know, that, is not necessarily something that physical therapy can help um, 100%. You know, we can improve strength in the area for sure. But, you know, as far as how it looks or feels is is so subjective. And, you know, what we're more concerned about in our field is uh, is function. Like, are you having incontinence? Are you having issues, you know, with your, with your bowels is how is it relating to sexual dysfunction? But I will tell you like my favorite device on the market, which I, I think it's the best device to help with any sense of, of looseness is a internal vaginal muscle stimulation. Mm-hmm. And only way you can get that over the counter is through this company called in control medical devices. And they have two different over the counter ones. One is called the intensity, which is a vibrator and pelvic floor muscle stimulator. And the stimulation that it uses is the same stimulation that we've used in the PT world for decades to help with stress incontinence. So it helps with strengthening the muscle. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they don't like the look of that, because it looks too sexual, if they're just not into vibrators for whatever reason, um, then they have a more medical line called the apex and it's the apex m but it's over twice the cost of the the intensity and what makes it so nice is if there is actual laxity in the vaginal walls then this muscle or this muscle i'm sorry this device intensity um pumps it has like a little pump in it so that it can fill the space and then you're delivering delivering electrical stimulation to help strengthen the space. Oh. And I have had some patients that have that concern of like vaginal laxity and you know, like they just had tearing, you know, during delivery and they are just concerned about sort of the looseness because I definitely get these, pati- these questions from patients. Mm-hmm. That would be the best over-the-counter thing that I would point people to, to help try to restore some, some good tone in the area. So and either the apex M, apex or, M or, or the intensity. intensity. And it's the same company, just the intensity is more, um, uh, referred to for sexual health. Mm-hmm. And the apex M is more for like pelvic health specifically, like they market it for incontinence Mm -hmm. for mixed urinary incontinence, stress plus urge, but because it pumps up, you will get good contact with the vaginal walls, no matter how much laxity there is. And then when you're using the muscle stimulation on top of it and getting a muscle contraction and improving your strength over time, um, you, you should notice, I tell patients, just make sure you're pumping it up a little bit less over time so that the muscles can now contract around something smaller. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, whether or not they feel it's, it's not going to be like how it was before they had a baby. And that's okay. You know, if you're continent and you are, um, you know, there's no sexual pleasurable sex. Yes. Yeah. Like, like it's okay to look different. Like look at what you brought into this world because of it. And it's just like stretch marks. Right. And like C-section scars and it's all like so wonderful and beautiful. Like look what you did. Like Mm -hmm. it shouldn't, none of that should be looked at with shame because it's the same thing with like women sort of like the extra skin they get, you know, they get so self-conscious and they're ashamed of it, but really that conversation needs to be changed to like, look how beautiful your children are and you did this and that's amazing. And your body did this and that's amazing. Yeah. And you're pointing towards more of, um, well, definitely embracing what you brought into the world, but also function like, you know, is, is there any incontinence? Is there any pain? Well, let's deal with that rather than dealing with the appearance of it. So it being loose is not necessarily, or should not be a concern. It's more of, are you having any incontinence? Yeah. But you know, People, there will always be plastic surgeons that will yeah. do the tummy tuck because yeah. people can be, 
Yeah, vaginoplasty is the the perinorphy, which where they're kind of shoring up that perineal, um, the like uh, vaginal introitus if it's gaping. Yeah, um, yeah there'll there'll always be people that do that. You know, vaginal rejuvenation surgeries, and that's just the wrong. It's it's the wrong message. I it think really so too. Oh my gosh, I think so too. Like it is not a good message to bring to women. And I, I don't believe, I, mean, I haven't done very much research on it, um, but I don't believe it helps anything with in um, any conditions. Like it doesn't help with, you know, making sex more pleasurable or it doesn't help with any of those things. It's more of just the appearance. So yes, no, I hate, I, I don't, I don't encourage any of those surgeries. Yeah. Yeah. Just turn the lights off and be done with it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, Heather, um, it is, uh, we're a little bit over, but I wanted to thank you so much for being on the podcast and telling people all about, uh, having sex without pain. Cause I think that it is so important. And, uh, what I want you to leave the guests with is your, um, like how people can stay in contact with you. How can they, um, get your book? and so forth. Yeah. So, um, I'm most active on Instagram. If you're on there, I'm at the lady parts PT. So that's like P like Peter T like tango, the lady parts PT. Um, I'm also on Facebook at the lady parts PT. Uh, my office, uh, URL is feminapt.com. So it's F-E-M-I-N-A-P-T.com, sort of like female femina PT. And I'm my book, you can get in PDF format for immediate download on sexwithoutpainbook.com, as well as it's on Amazon and like all e-reader platforms. Um, if you do want a hardcover of the book, or not a hardcover, but a, a hard copy, I should say, of the book that's in a paperback form, um, that is on Amazon. And it's also on Soul Source Dilator's website. And it's also at uh, current medical technologies um, website as well here in the U.S. If you're listening, listening internationally, um, Pelvic Relief is the vendor that sells it in the U.K. Uh, or and across Europe actually. So there are a couple of different ways um, you can access access the paperback version. Okay. Well, I will put that all in the show notes as well. So the the dial or the vibrators, the um, how to get in contact with you, and um, how to get your book. Sounds great. Thanks, yeah. Carol. Thank you so much, Heather. I appreciate you so much. Uh, this was awesome. Thanks yeah. for for chatting about vaginas and vulvas with me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye.